Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital. This is an episode of Sidecar, a special bite-sized discussion of the latest market issues. Hello, welcome to Committed Capital Sidecar, Deckert's ad hoc bite-sized podcasts covering quick updates on developments that will affect private equity. My name is James Fishkin. I am an antitrust partner in Washington, D.C., and I previously spent 15 years at the Federal Trade Commission. I advise clients on high-profile mergers among competitors in a wide variety of industries to help navigate these mergers through the FTC and DOJ. I am Mike Cowie. I'm co-chair of Deckard's Antitrust Practice. Uh, Like Jim, I worked at the Federal Trade Commission and held leadership positions there in merger enforcement. Uh, and I've acted for industry leaders in some of the most visible, uh, high-profile deals, such as CVS Health, Aetna. Hi, I'm Ronnie Habash. I'm a partner in D.C., and I also focus on high-profile mergers, including American Airlines and U.S. Airways, CVS, Aetna, and Albertsons and Safeway, among others. In this episode, we will be speaking about Deckard's Boiling Points collection of bad documents and its counseling program. To start, Mike, what is Boiling Points? Uh, So for years, I've been collecting actual hot documents used by the government in merger challenges. So these are publicly available business records or quotes from business records in filings made by the Federal Trade Commission or the Justice Department. And we built this out as a comprehensive collection. Okay, you could think of this as about 100 slides. It's branded as boiling points. It's publicly available at Deckert.com backslash boiling. Uh, no one else has produced anything like this. It's a it's a you know a practical fun counseling tool. Uh, you know, an illustration is CEO for a buyer saying we need to do this deal to be the 800 pound gorilla. So we have colorful illustrations like that, as well as more analytical statements that, that potentially raise concern. Uh, Jim, would you comment on some of the issues we see when acting for sellers in the M&A process? Sure, Mike. Um, In terms of acting for sellers, one of the important parts of our advice is working with them on their SIMS and other banker-prepared documents. And to start, SIMS are typically prepared by bankers to help companies. They not only describe the company and its products, but they also generally discuss the competitive landscape. This is why the HSR filing instructions specifically require copies of SIMS to be included in the HSR filing. The frontline lawyers at the FTC and DOJ, and I used to be one of these lawyers for many years, they are using the SIM in their initial assessment of a transaction to help them determine whether second requests should be issued to the merging parties, which can delay a merger by as much as a year or even longer. SIMs are typically filled with a lot of favorable adjectives to help sell the company. It's part of the marketing. And by itself, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Bankers and business leaders, however, frequently use words and phrases such as dominant firm, disruptive firm. There are references to market and market shares, sticky customers, barriers to entry, etc. 
as part of their business lexicon to help sell the company. Sims also typically describe why other firms are not effective competitors. For example, they lack scale or they do not have a national footprint. And for certain industries, the SIM may discuss opportunities for roll-ups and further consolidation in the marketplace. And these are the types of words and phrases that can raise red flags for the agency lawyers reviewing the merger file. I'd like to quickly explain where Deckard's antitrust team provides guidance to minimize the antitrust risk with the SIMs while still achieving commercial objectives. So, you know, to start, we like to explain to the bankers and the business leaders that the words and phrases they typically use in their everyday business lexicon can have a different meaning to antitrust lawyers. We advise the business leaders and bankers to engage with us early so that we can provide advice that will avoid the business lexicon that they're always using being taken out of context while at the same time achieving the commercial objective to get the most bidders interested in buying the company at the highest price. So here are just a few examples that we provide. The word dominant tends to be, in my view, overused. And it also suggests from a legal point of view, monopoly power. It is better to say, and it may even be more accurate, to say that the company is a leader. You know, another phrase which I tend to see a lot more of is the use of the phrase sticky customers. And that may suggest to government attorneys that these customers cannot easily switch to a competitor. In reality, this may just mean that these particular customers tend to stay with the company for long periods of time because they're getting outstanding products and services at competitive prices. You know, in those circumstances, we advise replacing sticky customers with loyal customers and explaining how the company earned the customer loyalty. That's helpful, Jim. Mike, from a buyer's perspective, can you discuss the value of a good synergy story and the importance of pro-competitive deal themes? Yeah. So, Ronnie, what's unique for the buyer is they're taking the lead on the, you know, the synergy or business case for the deal. Um, and those analyses are going to be part of the package that's turned over to the government initially. Uh, the best process, in, in my experience, is early on, you have the deal team and council developing positive pro-competitive deal themes. Okay, so these are deal themes where the financial case, the commercial case for the deal corresponds with the regulatory interest. Uh, so... You know, in antitrust, we we're trained to think about the impact on consumers. So we, you know, encourage deal themes that look for benefits to consumers. So these could be uh, sales growth, investment in, in new capacity, ways of combining complementary technology, uh, accelerating R&D, lowering costs. So if you have those deal themes, and you can think of these as four or five bumper sticker themes, you know, that can drive internal and external communications, right? And how folks express the themes may differ when you talk to investor relations, that may be different than talking to the government. 
Uh, PR folks may use slightly different terminology, but everybody is operating with ruthless message consistency, right? And you're not playing whack-a-mole over uh, problematic uh, statements and documents. So that's that's the best process. And when you have that process, you avoid some of the problems you see in this boiling points collection. So, that, for example, we had a deal for Whole Foods when they bought Wild Oats. The CEO writes to the board, and this is all public. He says, we should do this deal to end bloody, bloody price wars. The deal will help us end bloody price wars. Uh, you see many illustrations in boiling points where the deal rationale is to stabilize pricing, to eliminate a pricing maverick, to provide pricing discipline. Uh, so those are those are problems to avoid. We also see a lot, especially in healthcare transactions, references to creating leverage, clout, negotiating power, and all of those will be seen by the government as ways of saying you could raise price. Okay, Ronnie, you want to uh, supplement or add some illustrations? Yeah, so I agree with all that. I think the best themes are the ones that focus on what is going to benefit the consumers coming out of that deal. And every deal I've ever worked on has some sort of consumer benefit coming out of it. And so those are the those are the best deal themes. I'd say the worst ones are the ones that don't focus on the consumer, but instead focus on, for example, defending your market share or taking a competitor out of the market or preventing another competitor from buying the target. I mean, those are the types of themes that often show up in the government complaints to show that a deal is not pro-competitive, but instead it's being done to protect monopoly power. And those are the ones that run into the most trouble. Uh, moving on, Jim and Mike, I know you spent a lot of time at the FTC and you've also done some recent merger litigations. Could you share just a few examples or war stories from that experience? Sure. This is Jim. When I was at the FTC, I served as lead attorney on many investigations that resulted in merger challenges, including merger litigation at trial. One example was the, the first um, challenge to Staples Office Depot. In that case, for example, that started off with investment bankers urging Staples and Office Depot to merge so that they would be able to have higher prices and higher margins. Documents like that, that were also forecasting price increases, which you see in many of the mergers that are challenged, at least challenged successfully, can have a very strong impact on the decision makers at the FTC and DOJ. So that's why these documents also have importance. They resonate very easily with the ultimate decision makers. One quick story based on the absence of hot documents is uh, a deal I had about two years ago. I was acting for a private equity firm. Uh, one of their operating companies was a chemical sector manufacturer okay? and the private equity firm ran an auction the challenge was, you know, the high bidder was a direct competitor and, you know, market shares, shares were relatively high. Um, but we, you know, we had pro-competitive deal themes. Uh, the deal was not about raising prices. It was about complementary technology, uh, adding capacity, uh, growing sales, 
appealing to customers. So what happened was because on the surface it looked like high market shares, the FTC challenged the deal. And in court, we kept showing the judge that there were no hot documents. And we did that. I did that by examining the CEO and said, did you ever write an email that this deal is about raising price or taking out capacity? No. Have you ever seen a document like that? No. Uh, and we were able to present those questions to witnesses knowing that they would not be undermined with documents. Uh, and when the court issued the decision approving the merger and allowing the deal to close, what he wrote was, there are no smoking guns. The government just has a squirt gun. The deal got closed. Ronnie, you want to uh, finish with some concluding comments about boiling points? Yeah, I just want to explain why boiling points is so important. Uh, these deal documents, as, as mentioned earlier, these go into the, the filings that go to the government when you're doing a deal, and they color the government's decision as to whether to launch a lengthy investigation or not. And we track how long these investigations take in our Deckard Antitrust Merger Investigation Timing Tracker. Damn it. And what we found is that on average right now, these second request investigations are taking you know, on average about 12 months. So, and then if you end up in litigation, you're, you're talking about another five to seven months as well. And so just having poor document creation uh, internally can cause delays of you know, 12 to 20 months on average. And so, you know, that's why counseling under boiling points is so important to get ahead of these types of issues uh, that might be misconstrued or taken out of context by the government and focusing on uh, the things that matter most and why these deals are good for consumers. Mike and Ronnie, thank you for joining me today. And everyone out there, thank you for listening. To access the Boiling Points collection, go to Decker.com slash boiling. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deckert's Committed Capital. Please subscribe. And for more information, visit Deckert.com.